Hello, and welcome back for an early episode of the AI Artifacts podcast this week. I'm Brian Warmoth with my co-host Sarah Luger. We hope you have a happy Thanksgiving, but expect that today's entire news segment will be fresh for about as long as it takes to cook a turkey. Great, here we go. Sarah, welcome back. It's an early episode this week. Happy early Thanksgiving to you and to all of our listeners. Thanks for having me. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. It's remarkable. We're coming back only a few days later from our previous episode, but we're still talking about the same thing, as is everybody else. The OpenAI saga is continuing. You and I were just Continues. talking about this. You know, why Why do you think this story's captured national attention the way it has? Uh, this is a... This is a great question. I think that it's captured the attention of folks who usually don't care because we've almost had a year of ChatGPT. This surrounds a company that produced that. We've been focusing, and by we, I mean the media hype has been focusing on uh, how great AI is, how this company's initial goal was to do um, uh, general artificial intelligence. So basically create robots that are smarter than we are for for many a task. And here we have a situation that looks like a um, kind of an own goal, like a total person problem as opposed to a technology problem, which is refreshing because building companies is hard. And this is the, there's an interesting board situation here where we're trying to navigate as a AI community, like, profit and accountability transparency but yeah this is this is an exact this there's so many players in this situation this is like worst yeah this is like worst case scenario right like the people in charge yeah you have microsoft as a big player in this and satya nadella stepped in and taken an outsized role especially since we last spoke about this on the podcast uh let me run down some of the developments since people last listened to us uh first of all there is a new uh, there's a new interim CEO since Mira Marathi was first announced. Uh, she says she has since expressed her support for Sam Altman, and they've gone on to name ex Twitch CEO Emmett Shear as interim CEO. The board has, I should say. Um, however, he has expressed that unless they are forthcoming with evidence about why uh, Sam Altman was removed, he will also plan to leave. He may be gone by the time you hear this. In the meantime, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella said that Altman, Greg Brockman, uh, and other employees from OpenAI will join Microsoft as a part of a new AI research group there, where Sam Altman will have, I believe, a CEO title, and they are essentially trying to move that operation of people in-house, which could be a big win for Microsoft uh, strategically. We were talking about this earlier. I'm curious to know what's going on at Google and Meta uh, to to plan around this because this he, he may have turned uh, a problem into a strategic opportunity here. I don't know how you feel. About oh, definitely. That. Yeah, I think that he is most concerned about customers and continuity. This mm-hmm. is the difference between perhaps a startup, even though a startup that is worth on paper a week ago ninety billion dollars. This is a uh, Microsoft has a spot in our global economy that is one of delivering products in a very uh, boringly dependable way. And the contracts that 
that uh, Microsoft has based on the partnership with OpenAI are enormous. It also sounds like OpenAI's customers have been looking around for other options and there are other options. So instability is not good for business. Especially when you're a publicly traded company like Microsoft is. Although so exactly. far they seem to have been benefiting from the the news. As Highest it's stock price ever. Yeah. Um, yes. Right. And uh, going down the list, 95% of OpenAI employees have said they would quit. Uh, I'm reading from the Financial Times That's... here with that that calculation. Uh, I, some really good sources for following this. The information has had some amazing access to uh, breaking news and the stories that's been going on. Nice job, information. Yeah. Emily Chang over at Bloomberg has been doing incredible work as well. I find that she has been ahead of the game. Kara Swisher has been ahead of the game on this on a lot of counts. Right now, it's in. there are still open scenarios wherein Sam Altman could return to OpenAI. Uh, Satya Nadella has said that he is open to that idea. This is just a remarkable state of uncertainty. Right? Flux. And, and yeah. he's, you know, at face value, expressing a lot of flexibility amid all of these things. It's clear that he's, he's trying to commit to Sam Altman and everything about OpenAI that extends from Sam Altman in terms of what operation... They can absorb there and continue with their their existing plans, right? It's been so fluid. You know, it's, I think about this and I, I say, like, you know, I don't think AI could figure out what's going to happen next. You'd be better off with a quantum computer that's telling you the multiple states of things right now because yeah, it's this so is, hard to this watch. Is, yeah, uh, this is novel information. <laughs> but I, I agree with you that there have been some really interesting signals coming in from uh, well-placed and informative journalists. But again, why do we care? I think we care because the threat of AI is looming. Mm. And this is a company that was founded with awareness of that threat and some decision making around how they were organized to hopefully mitigate that threat. And that that struggle seems to be ongoing. From what we can ascertain, the rationale for any internal stress at OpenAI was around that balance between uh, making money and AI for good. And that's, it's at the root. I, I'm going to include two links in the show notes today. I, I saw there, there's a really good newsletter from journalist Eric Newcomer about this. I, uh, he, I'll, I'll put he, I'll put him and one more I'll mention in a second in the notes. But uh, he, he consciously took a maybe devil's advocate position against the more popular reactions to, to this scenario, especially in Silicon Valley. And like, you know, I know you and I are hyper attuned to what's going on in tech in San Francisco and all this. Um, per, yeah. You know, perhaps too attuned. You know, for, <laughs> for better or worse. Noted. Right. And, you know, I think broadly speaking tech and the founder community and the VC investor community has been very supportive of Sam, Sam Altman throughout all this publicly in contrast to public support for the board. However, you know, newcomer came in here and said we shouldn't let poor public messaging blind us from the fact that altman has lost the confidence has lost confidence of the board that was supposed to legitimize open ai's integrity once you add that possibility of existential risk from a super powerful artificial intelligence which open ai board member sutskever ilias sutskever i should add there seems genuinely concerned about that only amplifies the potential risk of any breakdown in trust Right. And the thing is, the board isn't out there making a public case about this, even in the initial release announcing 
the made the first wave of changes as they envisioned it with Altman leaving, they weren't really specific and they haven't yet altered that communication strategy to really add fidelity speak to, the, to the messaging. Yeah, right? speak, yeah. speak to what our questions are. We, like, we, why is this happening? And, it, and that's only yeah. fueled speculation. And I've seen people say it looks like they're willing to let the whole thing burn down in order to preserve the altruistic sort of mission that they seem to be flagging in the, in what messaging is like, out there. Right. And yeah. and the second thing I'll throw in there is um, a really fine journalist at Puck, uh, Teddy Schleifer, had this thread where he was breaking down how Sam Altman seems to have been playing this very well in the media. And I, I don't say play like cynically here. I just say uh, in his thread, he, he wrote reporters like Sam Altman. I do. He makes time for them. He understands the game and facing the biggest crisis of his professional life. Sam's absolutely reaping the rewards of those relationships, whether intentionally or not. And, you know, this is something as a journalist, you'll pick up on working in tech. There are a lot of companies, especially startups and tech CEOs who don't like dealing with the media at all. And they like to keep things on a very need to know, here's our press release, take it or leave it. This is our communication work last word on the subject. And that journalists obviously get very frustrated about that because it limits their access to um, nuanced information and understandings that they help them better understand what they're reporting on. Uh, Sam has a history of talking to journalists and cultivating relationships, which has ingratiated him in some cases and made them more willing to listen to what he has to say during all this. And he's clearly taken advantage of that. Exactly. This is about building relationships. Again, I, I can't believe, and yet, of course I can believe that this is a technology com- a technology company freakout that is human error based. Yeah. I also want to push back a little bit on um, some of the hot takes around the board. Please do. Maybe that the organization of the board is bad. Mm. I think we have some pretty low data on this is unusual to have a nonprofit board running a company, but maybe the folks on the board weren't equipped to deal with a company that became this massively, I mean, $90 billion, this is kind of a Gates Foundation, um, Warren Buffett, you know, who are nonprofit players that should that have the global experience that should be on this board. Mm -hmm. And if we don't hear from a transparency perspective about what their concerns are, I think that, and all anyone is going to do is is um, hypothesize. I think it's a really so, great point. I, yeah, like we don't know if this is the incorrect uh, format. Maybe this is how we move forward to try to have transparency and rigorous um, pushback on capitalist tendencies that support sh- short-term gains over long-term company development, including supporting employees and the community, you know, especially with environmental concerns, but we just don't know. And the reason that we keep coming back to these questions of why do we care is because the average person is scared that the glorious future that AI could, could produce has been jeopardized by, by this foul up. And I want to also note that Historically, what you were saying about um, creating relationships and creating and getting nuance from from company leaders mm-hmm. is really key because ne- the narratives we tell 
are the and the ones that resonate are ones that have to do with you know uh, Joseph Campbell's great stories, right? Mm-hmm. These are these are the ones we care about. But there has been of late um, turning away from any sort of roles at tech companies that are not software engineers, and so uh, some some CEOs have famously said that they've gotten rid of all of their PR people that uh, they just don't care that they're going to be their own social media manager. And you can tell. That's, it's really remarkable. And I, it's, it's interesting you mentioned Gates specifically in the context of all of this operation potentially moving into Microsoft's offices, right? I, I, wonder, I wonder if he takes an active interest in, in any way in this right now. I don't, I don't know. He's, he's not as outspoken about AI as some other people, though. I'm sure we could pull pull up some quotes. Uh, I thought that he should just step in and take over. Right. I mean, he's, <laughs> maybe he's bored, that would be but he has a connection to Microsoft yeah. and, you know, well, let's, let's leave that there for more speculation. I, I mean, next week we're coming up, like you said, on the, on the one year anniversary of chat GPT's big release. Right. Uh, I think we'll have more to talk mm-hmm. about when we come back uh, to the next episode, what uh, here, here's number two, uh, actually on the top news of the week, uh, you, you may have seen here that the word of the year in the Cambridge dictionary is the updated definition of the word hallucinate. Uh, something we've, we've all encountered in our use of, of AI tools. Uh, the traditional definition, quote unquote, to see, seem to hear, feel, or smell something that does not exist has now been, accompanied by, quote unquote, when an artificial intelligence AI hallucinates, it produces false information, right? So tell me a little bit about what's going on in this. You know about the process of hallucination a little bit more than a lot of people might. I am of the camp that anthropomorphizing computer errors by calling them hallucinations Mm -hmm doesn't do us any favors because it um, removes human power from the product of an error. We generated this error. We created these systems and it removes some responsibility from, from the outcome. Right. Exactly. And it makes it seem magical, Mm -hmm. you know, as a fan of magical realism novels, hallucinations have spiritual, um, religious, often transcendent underpinnings, mm-hmm. and to give not just thinking but dreaming to a computer isn't a fair characterization. And I think we lose, as you said, responsibility. I like that. Yeah, because you know, if you know, if an, if an LLM creates when it creates a a misstatement of fact or a calculation that produces numbers that don't exist in theory it's not like there's some like you said to i'm a fan of magical realism myself it's not like there's some magical realism connotation to that that is inspirational or you know creates more adds to the wealth of creativity in the world it's just a mistake right it's not what the desired outcome is because these things are not meant to create these aren't machines for great creative, you know, masterpieces. They're there to estimate things and aggregate a lot of information and create estimated 
averages of of these ideas. So when they're off base and create something that is not an accurate representation of those things, you know, it's not what people want them to do as tools, right? And it's it's it is. I agree with you. It's strange to associate that with hallucinations in this context. What do yeah, you what do you think would no, be a better uh, way? What would be a better term to apply to it? An error. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I like like, that. Uh, um, no, it's like there's no Garcia Marquez fairy dust on this mm-hmm. that makes it amazing. It also by calling it a hallucination, um, it also kind of sweeps it down the road mm-hmm. and and doesn't say, "Hey, let's stop and analyze this as a as a mistake." Let's take corrective and from action from a scientific. Exactly. And we'll have a we'll have a a guest in a couple of weeks come to talk to us about LLM evaluation, uh, rigorous evaluation of AI systems. And if we just accept errors instead of push forward and say, why, mm-hmm. how can this be improved, then we're not uh, we're not actually uh, technically making the world a better uh, place. And we're we're kind of we're giving up we're saying oh computers you got it we're not there yet we're not there yet at all that. so I, I, I like the idea of adding you know, agency keep on the good fight yeah. humans <laughs> <laughs> cool. uh, speaking of fights uh, i have a brand new selection of two truths and Le ai options to put in front of you this week sarah you'll you'll notice a, a little seasoning ready. Of, of thanksgiving material into into our content for the week uh, for anybody who hasn't heard this before on an episode, every week I come to Sarah and I have two real news stories and one AI-generated story that I put in front of her that does not represent uh, a real reported story in the news. Uh, by the way, it's not that easy to go into the news these days and find AI that is not directly related to the open AI story that we were just talking about. Yes. So there, there was an added level of challenge to, to putting this together. So um, if you're ready, I'm going to jump in. Here's number one. This bizarre AI human generator lets you create fictional strangers. Subhead, it's time to enter God mode. AI human generator is the latest dystopian development to emerge from the world of artificial intelligence. The free-to-use tool allows users to create a unique person with a number of customizable settings, ranging from ethnicity to outfits. There's even an option to insert your own face to be creepily AI-ified onto a fictional stranger's body. Welcome to the future. AI Human Generator's website boasts that users can enter God mode with a host of customizable features such as age, gender, ethnicity, body type, and hairstyle. Under the ethnicity section alone, there is a diverse range of identities to choose from. And with the addition of customizable clothing styles, poses, and backgrounds, the options are seemingly endless. All right. Number two. Your guide to Thanksgiving, as planned by AI. We asked ChatGPT to plan Thanksgiving. The results were surprisingly helpful. When it's the exhausting hours in the kitchen, Aunt Lisa's helping herself to to a little too much wine, or Uncle Mark deciding that over dessert is the perfect time to launch into a political debate, Thanksgiving is a holiday with plenty of landmines. How can I prevent a fight about politics during Thanksgiving dinner? Here's where things get really loquacious. And the advice was basically the same from each of the chatbots, though Bing's was the most condensed. 
Each encouraged hosts to set expectations and boundaries with all of their guests beforehand and to establish a rule that the dinner is a politics-free zone, quote-unquote. They suggested guiding the dinner conversation with neutral topics and diverting tensions with humor, and above all else, having parties be respectful of each other. You know, expecting basic manners from your guests. All right, here's number three. AI misadventure turns Friendsgiving feast into fiasco. On the eve of Friendsgiving, a highly anticipated gathering turned into a technological nightmare as the excessive reliance on artificial intelligence tools led to a series of culinary catastrophes. What was supposed to be a joyous occasion on November 19th quickly devolved into chaos as one host's attendees discovered that not all advancements in AI are conducive to a seamless holiday celebration. The ill-fated Friendsgiving, organized by a group of tech-savvy friends in the heart of Silicon Valley, took a disastrous turn when an ambitious attempt to leverage AI for meal planning, cooking, and even conversation topics went awry. The brainchild behind this technological feast was Mark Thompson, an AI enthusiast who believed that automating every aspect of the event would elevate the gathering to new heights. Little did he know that his experiment would leave his friends craving the warmth of traditional human-driven holiday festivities. As the AI took center stage, the troubles began. The smart kitchen equipped with an AI-driven recipe generator churned out a bizarre menu that left guests scratching their heads. Dishes like algorithmic apple pie and quantum quinoa casserole may have sounded innovative, but the taste failed to live up to the intriguing names. Thompson's AI-powered turkey roaster, programmed for perfection, ended up overcooking the centerpiece of the meal, leaving the once succulent bird dry and nearly excuse me, inedible. All right, I'll leave you with that. So review, we've got okay, number one. So number one is the... Fictional Strangers. Fictional Strangers, yeah. Mm-hmm. Two is the Expectation Setter. Mm-hmm. For poli- managing political and discourse at the, ca- at the table. Managing, yeah. And three is the uh, badly, is the uh, the cooking, the, the, the poor automated for recipe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Well, I think one is completely plausible and that there are companies doing this um, right now. And they do this. Uh, synthetic humans is actually a big market. And it's one of the, the areas that uh, precipitated pushback from the Hollywood writers and actors mm-hmm. unions. Because they can de-age you and, and there's a lot of information. And there's a lot of photos online mm-hmm. from decades of... Hey, I think I'll post these photos online and those have been scraped. And yeah, I think that's plausible. Two, I, I, okay. I think it, I think the correct answer, I'm not going to say final, final, but I think it's probably two because sometimes it's like you don't want to have a conflict, but sometimes it's like, well, what else are we going to do? And then three, I I think that if you followed the instructions perfectly, it's very likely that you would overcook a turkey having been in that boat. And so I think that the AI does not have po- proper feedback to properly cook a turkey. So that sounds like a um, uh, bad human data, bad uh, computer output situation. So I think it's number two. Yeah, thank. Um, this is like the Chicago Bears winning this year on Thanksgiving Day. I feel very lucky. No, the, actually, number three was the fake one. 
that I put together. Oh, okay. I, I did abbreviate. Nice, you got me again. No, the first, the second one was uh, just just so everybody knows, Sarah's still ahead. This only puts us at three and two. She's still still three and two for this this series. Uh, yeah, the so I, I, it's funny. There's so many. If you go look online right now, there's so many recommendations for how to integrate AI into your holiday planning for Thanksgiving. This felt very representative when I pulled this out, and this was a, a fast company story that I'll link to uh, from the show notes. But they, I, I really like the section about <laughs> political discourse, which I, you know, I, I don't know if that's really pl- possible, but you know, kudos and like m- more power to you if you're able to enjoy your Thanksgiving and, and achieve that among your and large, large family chill. at the table. <laughs> yeah. So excellent. Cool. I'm so, glad I got so, another delete. That's my, that's only my second one yeah. in five episodes that we've done. No, I'm, I'm surprised that people were, well, I thought there was a good SNL skit where they had, everyone was really into Adele. Adele was the only thing that people could get behind. That was what I gotta um, go back and watch that. I don't think I've seen it. Yeah, it's it's a good one. It's basically every time someone's about to talk about, you know, a group where you put the yeah. in front of it, that's you know things are gonna get bad. It's like, you know, the problem with the insert term, um, and, and then they just play Adele and everyone gets everything gets better. Support that. I love Adele. Everybody should love Adele. Yeah, I mean, you know, we need more Adele. Voice of an angel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Let's let's go ahead then now to now that this is settled to our interview for this week. Last, I'll also note that that first article was from the Creative Block. All right. Please enjoy the interview. Guest today is Rob Salkowitz, an internationally recognized expert in the intersection of digital media and social and business trends. He's a consultant, a co-founder several times over, and author of four books. Uh, including, I believe, help me out if I'm wrong here, Rob, most recently Comic-Con and the Business of Pop Culture. Uh, he's a contributor at Forbes. Last major one, yeah. Last major one. Uh, and you may see, it may have seen him in Fast Company, Entrepreneur, or Bloomberg Business Week. He serves on the faculty at the University of Washington Communication Leadership Graduate Program. And his work has appeared in many other leading publications. He also does public speaking. Did I miss anything big, Rob? Uh, yeah, actually, my primary business media outlet right now is Forbes. So I'm senior uh, contributor for media and entertainment for Forbes. I also write for Publishers Weekly and for ICV2, sure. which is the trade pub, the comics and gaming and hobby industry. And ICV2 is actually the reason I reached out to him for this episode. I, I'll put the link in the show notes here. I, and I recommend everybody read his column on ICV2 from November 6th. It's uh, a great look at the role of AI tools in specifically the comics, comic book world and publishing. Uh, I think just a note for everybody else, I had to explain this uh, when it came up for Sarah. ICV2, which if anybody doesn't know, is a news site that covers comics, the comic book industry and publishing and manga from a real like sort of business first lens. It's not a fan site first uh, as opposed to some other outlets. So it's, it's really useful. A lot of publishers look there and a lot of retailers look there for what's going on. So um, the title was AI is coming to comics, whether we like it or not, uh, are there ways it could help? So Rob, I wanted to start the conversation off there. Um, I, I knew you from your, your recent book and from seeing your columns first in ICD2 and I discovered, discovered your work on Forbes too. Um, can you tell me a bit about some of the people you've worked with in media and entertainment and sort of what your general approach and uh, ideas are that you do you, 
look at through your work? So I actually got started more on the technology side than the media side. So I've been working on kind of cutting edge emerging technologies for almost 30 years now. So I got started doing 3D graphics and multimedia back in the 90s and early web stuff and digital publishing. And um, as that evolved and as the technology got better, I'm not smart enough to actually make this stuff myself. Um, I'm barely smart enough to use some of it. Uh, but one thing that I do is help people on the business side explain to the world why they should care about what it is they're doing. So uh, my first real deep dive into AI was, uh, I think, 2015 or 2016, when I was hired as the in-house storyteller for Microsoft's um, uh, high-tech incubator here in Seattle. And the focus of their investments was companies that were taking interesting approaches to AI for B2B context. So this was companies that were, uh, there were some really cool things like people would be able to take a, an 80 page contract and dump it into an AI and have it summarized in a single page table of here's what's in it for you. Here's what's in it for them. Hmm. Things like that, that I thought were really interesting. Um, around this same time, I, you know, I was doing, I had written my book on Comic-Con. So I was the guy who wrote a book about Comic-Con. So I was very plugged into the media and entertainment industry. And so I was watching all of this stuff and I think it was the, um, last summer, 2022 over the summer that I kept hearing from a bunch of different people, hey, you really need to try out like Dolly and Midjourney and Stable Diffusion. And um, I have, there's a, a two guys in the, on the comics uh, side, they run a publishing firm called Living the Line. Mm -hmm. And they, they were working on an AI generated graphic novel where they were taking prompts from a, from a tech essay on technology or something like that and feeding it into the AI. And what they were getting out was imagery that looked a lot like it was drawn by a famous uh, comic artist named Dave McKean. Sure. Uh, it was very surreal. People may and, recognize him from Sandman covers for Neil Gaiman back in the day. Yeah. And many others. Absolutely. Yeah. Cages is famous. Yeah. No, and, yeah and, and known for this sort of surrealist mashup of photographs mm -hmm. and, and painted imagery and grotesque, looking stuff. And so um, it was, it was fascinating. And I got kind of more into this. And the more I started playing around and saying, wow, like I can put in styles of different artists and get out output that looks like it could have maybe been done by the, those artists. From the business standpoint, the first thing I thought about was, oh my God, this is going to be devastating for the, for the creative industry. Mm -hmm. Re reason being that over the last 10 years, for the, maybe the first time in history, there's been a real market for people that are coming out of art school with digital art skills to work. I mean, like every time a Marvel movie ends, there's 15 minutes of credits. And every single one of those tiny print names is somebody that's doing character modeling, environment design, animation, um, special effects, compositing, like all of these particular things is a specialized skill and these are good jobs for somebody that came out of art school with like $80,000 in student mm -hmm. debt. And here they got hired by Lucasfilm or somebody like that. And they're being able to do the work that they were trained to do. Mm -hmm. And as I was playing around with stable diffusion myself and, and, and some of these other tools, I thought, Oh man, you know, not only is this practically effortless, but it's better. The output of it is better than anything that, if you're not at the absolute tip top of your profession, the composition, the color choices, 
the range of alternatives, the creative ways that it was interpreting these prompts. It was, you know, I'm, a, I'm kind of an amateur plunker myself mm -hmm. doodling and drawing and doing, uh, doing artwork. And it, it was very discouraging to me to that, that all of the craft and skill and professionalism was being drained out of it. And I thought, what a, what a remarkably destructive and irresponsible thing to be doing what the hell are these people thinking? Who was anybody out there asking for, gee, can we have a tool to replace artists, please? Um, so I, I started writing uh, about this and I, I managed to get an interview with the head of mid journey. Hmm. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll, put, I'll put that link into the show notes too. It's on, up on Forbes, I believe. Right. Yeah. It, Cause I was, writing a, big, I was writing a big feature story about it called AI is coming for commercial art jobs. Can it be stopped? Which is yeah. sort of the yeah. summation. And I talked to a bunch of different people. I talked to a um, creative director on the, on the production and video game side. I talked to artists. I talked to um, publishers, creators, like all, all of these different constituencies within this uh, to find out how this was going And it. And it, you know, most of the people were saying it was going pretty much the way I thought it was which is somebody was saying, look, all of my single image illustration work over the last six months has completely dried up. No more party invitations, no more posters, no more music, album covers, any of that stuff that these guys were doing. A lot of that stuff was starting to, they were noticing an impact on their business. And so I asked, you know, I, and the, the, the founder of Midjourney um, was, you know, somebody I would consider sort of typical mindset out of the, out of the tech industry that he was building a better mousetrap because he could. The issues of what was being disrupted and who was being disrupted didn't appear to occur to him. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. You wanna... I, I was just going to say it's a fantastic interview, Rob. Thank you for putting in that work because I found it interesting, devastating, but also for our audience, if anyone has seen the John Oliver um, episode on generative AI, he picks up on some of the similar trends, which is um, this founder, and he wants to be called that instead of CEO because the CEO is too businessy. This founder does a very good job of navigating the navigating exactly where we are with AI. And so where we are is there are companies who are using information on the online to build these models. And they're saying things like, we weren't picky, quote, we weren't picky about where we, what that data was. And there, quote, really isn't a way to figure out provenance and ownership. And, quote, we're looking at that when pushed on ownership, copyright. So it's, it's a very, I, I really hope that our audience does check out this interview because um, no matter how you feel right now and what you think, it it pushes a, this kind of middle ground um, a little bit farther and and does speak to what is next. I think the whole mindset of the industry since the rise of Google has been that if nobody tells us we can't have this stuff, then we're entitled to it. If it's you know if it's in public and sometimes it's in the terms of use of the platforms that they that they're entitled um, to all of this stuff and these are the contracts that nobody reads or nobody has cared about because they're thinking well, you know what the hell are the, or the utility of the platform and, and, and also to give, uh, you know, the, the 
founders of these companies there do. They really have created an amazing mm. product. I mean, it is mind-boggling what this does. The problem is, and, and also they, um, te- because it's not just this guy. I was at the TED conference in April, um, and, I, and I spoke to a bunch of other people that were doing different aspects of generative AI um, around these same topics. And the way they frame it is, well, we're giving people that don't have the God-given talent to pick up a pen and paper um, you know, the opportunity or they're too busy, but they have stories that they want to tell and this is assisting them. And my, my thought is these people themselves are obviously not creative because it seems to me fine, who, but who the hell wants to read or look at stuff that is produced by people that don't have the, the patience or the discipline, you know, because it's not, it's not talent. It's the, you know, it's the harder you work, the more talented mm-hmm. you get. Um, and people that don't have the commitment to put into something to a creative endeavor to get good enough at their craft to put their message across, I'm not sure I want to read that or look at that or, um, you know, I don't want that to be the mode of how we how we appreciate creative work in the world. It just um, and I, and hopefully uh, that, that's a broadly shared opinion and it will become you know blindingly obvious as soon as this stuff starts becoming a I, I really have two reactions that I'd love. And let me start with the first one. I'd, I'd like to hear from you about, uh, I mean, one, I have yet to see like comics, like narrative panels and pictures working together to tell a story done by AI that really jumped out at me as a storytelling product that was compelling. I, I don't know if you have best or worst cases you could point to. Um, Cause I, I was going to ask you a little bit about what you thought, the best roles of AI tools that you've seen are versus what are the limits? Because it's easy. If you're talking about people at the top business, people looking to cut budget and have the most efficient process to create something with the lowest possible cost. I get how you come to some of these tools, but the question I have is at what point do you have a product that's worth selling in the end that has a market for it? Because, you know, there, there's so many bad comics out there anyway, more bad comics done by AI is just noise. Right. And it's not something that I see launching successful. I like let's, let's go into the larger industry entertainment industry context. It's not something that's going to produce the next great IP for a film or franchise. I don't think, but um, I'd, I'd love to hear more about where you think the limits and possibilities really are. Well, to me, the, you know, I look at the art tools from the standpoint of somebody who, you know, is struggling to express myself visually, and this appears to be effortless. But I think to somebody that is a really accomplished artist that this can be an effective tool. Like Dave McKean, who we were talking about, actually did a book of AI, um, an AI comic that he himself shepherded into creation, basically, it's called Prompt. and in the second edition, he actually includes uh, an appendix about his thoughts on where AI and comics is going. Um, I saw him at the at the uh, San Diego Comic Con this year and, and chatted with him because uh, he had, he had actually included some of that interview in there uh, with with his with his bracketed appalled comments yeah. about it, which was very very funny. But um, but anyway, I think that's that's an interesting example. So there is you know the biggest thing in comics right now is webtoons. Mm. So these are mobile, vertically scrolling comics. They're optimized for mobile phones. They started in South Korea. 
Um, and the company Webtoon is the the main yeah. progenitor of them, but but there's like all I've kinds seen a of number of startups are, over the last half decade or so try to do this and fade away. Uh, and I, I know exactly what we're talking about. It's really popular for manga reading or manhwa in in South Korea, right? But it hasn't. I don't know if it's clicked on mass here. Well, so so DC Comics did a very interesting collaboration mm-hmm. with Webtoon where they do like a thing called Bruce mm-hmm. Wayne Adventures or something like that. And they have, because the reason is if you're under 25 and female, this is the way that you're likely mm-hmm. to be reading comics. It's like their, their demographic is all on the growth side. And then you look at, so uh, on a good month of like the best Batman comic of the year, it's going to sell 150,000 mm-hmm. copies at retail, mm-hmm. maybe. There are webtoons that have millions of paid subscribers per month waiting for these episodes. The reason I bring this up is that the webtoons are often, they're created by usually individual creators, occasionally studios, things like that. And that person is doing everything. They're doing the the art, the writing, the lettering, the coloring, all of the blocking and tackling that usually in the American comics industry is separate people's jobs. And one of the most daunting things is doing the background. So having the AI tools that are built into the authoring platforms for these things, they use a, they use a product called Clip Studio Paint uh, primarily is, is the main thing for this. And Clip Studio Paint in its latest versions has been building AI assistance into this. Not, um, so it's generative, but it's not, and it, and it goes along with a bunch of other tools. Like they have 3D models that you can pose and trace over if you're having trouble getting the pose of your character drawn properly. So all of this stuff is intended to speed up the workflow of these people that are already telling their stories that are already. Those are adjustments that can save somebody tens of minutes in some cases, right? Yeah. Oh God. And and these people are totally overworked. There's all kinds of stories about people getting burned out in the manga industry in the, in the, uh, there was a hashtag going around called comics broke me about the struggles of a lot of people in the industry because there's not that much money in it. And as long as you're in the driver's seat, and this thing is, as Microsoft says, you're a co-pilot, then, you know, um, I think there's a lot of potential for it to increase the productivity and reduce the stress of people who are already creative, as long as the algorithm is working for you rather than you mm-hmm. working for the algorithm. Um, so I think that that's a, that's a genuine area of improvement. And the reason I say, like, I started working with, with ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. I'm a professional writer. I've been writing for 30, 35 years. I've written for publication. I've written for books. I feel in command of my craft when I'm mm-hmm. writing. So I'm not intimidated and I'm not, um, I'm not put off by the output. I even asked the AI to write stuff in my style and it couldn't quite get it right. And I was happy yeah. about that. Um, but it was yeah. creepy that it even knew enough about who I was. But I have a, I have a pretty good web footprint. So they, they, they I really love the game of getting ChatGPT to, to do bios because you get really surprising, strange things that show up. <laughs> strange. Oh, it, it makes yeah. up. So that's part of my, my uh, French there. But um, so, um, so using, so I've used chat GPT in really interesting creative contexts and to help me with my work. And I know enough about what I'm doing that I, that it's like this output is garbage, but the structure mm-hmm. of it is okay. I can use this. Like I had to write an RFP for a project, uh, yeah. you know, for a client. I haven't written an RFP in 10 years. I forgot yeah. what they even looked like. So it's like, I just put some of this stuff into chat GPT and it spit out eight pages of boilerplate. And then I just went back in and it, I, it took me about 20 minutes mm-hmm. to rewrite it instead of taking me half a day to generate the thing by myself. It's so it, it can be really useful for those templated types of 
thing when you have when you have some sort of templated type of report or submission or something like that. Yeah. The the blank page issue is a real mm -hmm. is a real issue. You know, mitigating the how do I how do I write in this form is something that you haven't written mm -hmm. in a while. And when you were talking about these um, Korean um, uh, scrolling digital comics, it made me think a bit about scanlations, which is something that I used to um, read quite a bit of for Death Note before, you know, because basically technology allowed you to um, crowdsource translations of um, manga that was not yet published formally. And I, I understand that, um, I understand that genre and the possibility for input data to, to refine the specific context of translations. So I think that's a very interesting space. Well, that's another thing where it's like, if you're using it as a tool, it can help a lot. But with translation, especially translation of idiomatic pop culture stuff, like 99% right is can be 100% wrong if the goof exactly. is something that is just some laugh out loud stupid thing that a human translator that knows the language would have mm -hmm. caught in a second. But if some editor is just like, throw this into the AI, let's get it translated, let's get it out. Hey, we're same day mm -hmm. in Japan and the United States. We don't yeah. have to worry about all this stuff. If human eyes don't go on that thing, the amount of exposure that you can have for saying something ridiculous because comic fans, man, they pay attention, especially manga fans, man, they, they know the stuff. And if they catch something that is, that is off like that, um, you know, you become the story of the day and that, and not in the way that you want. Not in a so good way. This, this is an area, you know, uh, I, I, like I know people that are, that are translators to this stuff and it's a lucrative business, but being a translator means being a cultural interpreter, Exactly. Sometimes it means working with the artist on the other side. Um, like there's a very, there's a prominent um, Japanese comic artist right now, Peach mm -hmm. Momoko. She's doing Getting a lot this, of Marvel work. Uh, sort of yeah. came out doing this very sort of pop, pop art looking, really appealing stuff. Um, so the, her translator, uh, Zach Davison, is working with her through Marvel and is really taking her artwork and bringing it into a U.S. cultural storytelling context in ways that go way beyond translation. That's not a, that's not something that, that you can give to a machine. And I hope it's exactly. not something you give to a machine. You have to have an expert in the, the realm to have like a parallel metaphor. You know, this is, this is, a, this is art. This is poetry. Trans, automated translation has made huge inroads with large language models, but Having read a lot of scanlations in my day, I can see that this is a specific niche that will continue to um, be be unique and beautifully so. I mean, the problem, though, is that if it preserves 10 or 20 percent of these unique things and these hard to automate roles, because you, you, you would ask me before I got off on Webtoons, like, you know, the there's a technical issue with comics where, um, you know, the characters have to look the same panel to panel and they have to. And they all have to have, whether they have four fingers or five fingers, they have to have the same number of fingers, you know, like stuff like that, that right now this, this iteration of AI technology is not quite good enough. But it, it, I mean, even in the last six months, it's been getting better. I've been watching it sort of converge on fixing those problems. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, the days of us wondering about that in, the, you know, are, uh, are, are going to be coming to an end. 
But okay, so let's say there's 10 or 15% at the top of the industry that can't be automated mm -hmm. because it's professional. Well, 85, 90% right. is a lot. And that's all of these people that, okay, you're, you, we need a lead character designer because we need somebody with the judgment and the experience to know what this character should look like. But that person got that job from 20 years of doing the, the layouts and the sketches and all the stuff that the art director says, these are terrible, give me 20 more, you know, and that, that sort of thing. And that's, that's where they get to that point. And so if you knock out all of those rungs of the ladder, then the pipeline for the experienced talent that you need is going to dry up sooner rather than later. And yeah, you almost then, have it's, it. What? It seems like it's incumbent to invest in the training for that pipeline to ensure that you have a, the continued ability to do it in a you know high quality way. This this actually has bigger implications, even mm -hmm. like like geoeconomic implications. So before I wrote the book about Comic Con, mm -hmm. I wrote a book called Young World Rising, um, which was in 2009, which is about how young digital entrepreneurs in emerging economies are creating social transformation in conjunction with technological innovation. And so a lot of these places in, in, that are, you know, going to be the most populous parts of the world in the next 20 or 30 years because of their demographics, they have an urgent need to make sure that their young people have marketable skills. And so when you look at a at creative industry stuff like animation, the low level animation jobs have been sort of hopscotching around the world to the lowest cost market. So they went from they went from Japan to South Korea to India to South Africa to Nigeria. You know, like like so they're they're making their way to these different countries. And every time they get there, even though these are crappy jobs, these are like the in-betweeners and the people that are that are drawing all of the incidental stuff that, you know, and it's you know, sweatshops and it's it's not great. But it's better than a lot of stuff, and the and it's laying the groundwork because the people that are running those businesses, South Africa has developed its own indigenous animation industry because of the investment that was made and because of the workforce development that was being made in these places. Well, again, if you kick out like, and those are the jobs that are going to be um, first to be automated, and if you take that away from from places that really need that workforce development and that economic diversification, you know, it's more than just, oh, a bunch of cartoonists are going to be out of work. It's, you know, bigger. One thing you're writing uh, mentions is that both these creative jobs and software engineering jobs, they have very high levels of autonomy and satisfaction. And it's interesting that they've almost been pitted against each other uh, in this specific case, but your points about kind of reducing the 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 skills, the jobs lower in the stack of this specific domain are quite parallel. And your comments about um, you know having having people who were earlier in their career development being kind of kicked off the the ladder resonate for both of those uh, types of positions. Have you been working? Any more on this with with um, some of the the tech startups you've been involved with? Oh, in terms of the automation of, of the tech development, I'm aware of it, but it's not my meat and drink the way that this the, the creative industry stuff is. But I will tell you something about this. So I, when I was at the TED conference, and they had a panel of these AI people on it, and I 
had a question and I said, you know, I asked him specifically about the implications of the automation of these particular kinds of low level jobs. And they said, well, they said, you know, technology always creates disruption and the workforce adapts and the people that are doing these kind of jobs, they can become AI mm-hmm. trainers and things like that. And I said, wait a minute. For the last 20 years, the people that were doing the technology automation, their whole mantra was, we want to do away with the dirty, unsafe, repetitive, stupid jobs so that people could focus on the stuff that is creatively fulfilling and that only humans can do. And now all of a sudden you're turning this around and saying, we're going to get rid of the jobs of artists and turn them into trainers of AI technology, you know, working in data mines. It's like really... Like that's that. Those that's ideas the, don't fit together. Yeah, those, I, I those two worldviews do not merge very elegantly. The arrogance and lack of awareness of of the uh, and the irresponsibility at a macro sense of what these folks are doing is breathtaking. Even not notwithstanding the convers the incredibly frustrating conversations about like, well, where is all this stuff yeah. going? Well, we don't really know. Yeah. And this gets back to what you were talking about earlier with like, you know, like the, we'll look into it attitude. Uh, I'll tell you the, the other thing I was going to mention from earlier, this brings up for me. I, I see a lot of echoes of early like Buzzfeed era attitudes toward fair use in content in for training these LLMs. Uh, I, you know, I remember like that you people may may or may not remember when BuzzFeed took lots and lots of content down because they'd been treating large swaths of content from other articles under a fair use policy where they just said, Oh, if we recontextualize it, it's just fine for us to take this photo or this and this. And a lot of people imitated that approach uh, for, for years until copyright enforcement really caught up with their legal perspectives. And they, they took a lot of things down. And I, I wonder if we're not positioning ourselves for a similar reckoning at some point, or will it be too late by the time everything's inside the uh, training data sets? Well, I mean, the, the problem is, you know, if you're talking about like Dolly or Midjourney or something like that, where these are services and it, I'm sure they don't want to retrain their whole data sets, but conceivably they could stable diffusion is a different matter because that's open source. And there's, all of these models that people are making that are putting out online. Well, that toothpaste is out of the tube. And, and it's all, even if they stop today on development of any of this stuff, it's already good enough. And the, the bigger problem, and this is something that I talked about in the, in that commercial art piece that I did for um, Forbes is that it's not just that the training data is being put in there, like, and, and being used without consent. It's that end users can pull it out attributed to the original creators. So there's a guy named Greg Rutkowski who's become kind of a cause celebre because his name is like synonymous with a certain kind of AI prompt for doing fantasy art. So this guy does like magic cards and posters and like really cool fantasy sci-fi art of like dragons and like mythical kingdoms and stuff like that. He's really good. And the AI... Is, has sampled enough of his work that it can create convincing replicas of his stuff, not just him, but like, you know, just to pick one, but, you know, any living artist. And the problem that he told me is he's a freelance artist. Art directors go online and they look for stuff to say, you know, 
And when they put in Greg Rutkowski art, he said more and more of the results are AI generated, not my actual art. So he said, notwithstanding the use of this stuff that was done without my permission, he says, I don't know what I can do about that. But he said, this is a, this is a real problem that people, this needs to be watermarked or it needs to be, you know, set, shown in some way that this is not to be confused with my actual work. Because I don't think he's, he's another one of these guys that he's probably good enough that he's not terribly worried about, you know, like if, if, if anybody that wants like good stuff is going to hire him and not hire an, a, an AI to do it. And there's only one of him, so there's enough, you know, probably enough to keep him afloat. But if they can't find him or if they mistake crappy AI renderings for his handmade work, you know, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a knife at the throat in a different way. Um, so at the very least, whatever you can say about the fair use, they have got to make it not possible to prompt for um, – for work by, by living artists. In, in, and I wonder in if that's styles. something that gets solved at a high level, or if it just ends up being determined by how many times does Disney or somebody else who's an IP rights holder with enough legal resources, um, fires a shot at them. Like I, there was an issue, there was something by the time this airs, it'll be more than a week ago, but there was a, an issue I was reading about recently with, uh, Bing changing its image request because Disney was not happy with the Disney posters people for movies that people were able to generate that looked convincingly like Disney movie posters. You know, but it's a clash of the Titans. I mean, it's not, you know, like if Disney and Microsoft get into a cage match, I, I don't mm -hmm. know what the betting odds on that are. I, I'm like, they seems like they're fairly evenly matched. I wouldn't want to take on Google or, right. or some of these other companies uh, necessarily if they're, if they're the ones fighting to keep the door open. And the only thing that will restrain them, I think, is the reputational impact that they're seen as aiding and abetting the, the pillaging of culture. I don't think that's necessarily a public reputation that they mm. Well, let me, I, I, we're coming up on a half hour. Sarah, do you want to ask something? I just wanted to, to note, I, I really uh, appreciate the, the strength of the concerns the, the this is a this is about people's livelihoods but that there are some you know positive things in the future or at least approaches to you know workarounds so one is perhaps a great use of blockchain you know we always associate blockchain with money and i say we many people associate blockchain with bitcoin but blockchain especially with metadata usage could be a really interesting way of these, some of these artists, perhaps some of the ones who are more established to say, this is the metadata associated with my image. Think of it as provenance, uh, perhaps a modern version of an artist's portfolio book that fine artists would have had a hundred years ago. This is, these are all the pieces that I've had in exhibitions. This is me, this, you know, this is me, this is not me. Um, I think that's very interesting. And, of course, Disney is going to be a thought leader because they are ones who do have a style to protect and have been over the last hundred years, really the, the um, image copyright, uh, the, the guys. And then secondly, there's some solutions out there that uh, my friends have been experimenting with that can mask your images. So one of the, the things that the Midjourney founder viewed was like, oh, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just scrape everything. 
Sure, we'll scrape everything if it's on a platform that you are using for free where you've actually given the rights over to that platform. But what about on your own artistic um, hosted website where you, where you are in charge? There are places that you can, uh, some solutions mm-hmm. that help mask these images. Have you, have you interacted with any of the masking or gotten feedback from artists using those? I haven't. I think that the countermeasures are definitely the way of the future um, for dealing with this moving forward. On the blockchain point, that's really interesting because I was involved um, uh, a bit on blockchain and NFT stuff. I was in, I was asked to be a consultant on some projects for this, and it was really it was kind of a coin toss because I was looking at it and I was saying I'm I believe that the the fundamental benefits of blockchain technology are exist like that's true. But these business models were really shady to me. And I thought the best I can do is there's a big, there's going to be a big pile of money on the table and artists are going to be able to get a piece of it if they act quickly. And, um, you know, it's, it's almost like a, uh, you know, like a, a, a redistribution of money from, from venture capitalists to creative people. And the money is coming anyway. You might as well get your piece of it. And that was my, rationale for for even participating in that end of the industry but when i went when i was starting to talk to people on the ai creative side a lot of them told me we were expecting blockchain to be there when this generative technology became available and that would solve exactly the problems you're talking about it would solve the provenance it would solve the rights management it would solve chain of custody all the things that blockchain is good at except that the minute that generative ai broke the surface, blockchain went down. That was the moment when the NFT market crashed. That was the moment when, uh, you know, Sam Bankman fraud and all these other things uh, started started to hit the fan and everything. So all of a sudden, you know, AI is ready for its close-up, but its partner, blockchain, was still had its pants down behind stage. So they said, we didn't, like, we have to move forward with the stuff that we're doing, even though the security and privacy and provenance layer isn't there the way we expected it. So it's like, okay, we'll release the car, even though it doesn't have brakes and a steering wheel. Like, you know, again, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the mindset of the industry that you have to be first to market. You got to get this stuff out there. I mean, it reminds me of like the, in the 1950s when they were talking about nuclear toasters and stuff like that. It's like, hey, we've got this like great new technology. Like, let's let's get it in people's houses before we have any mm, idea. That's a great comparison. What, like you know, what it might do. Well, we we did have cars before mm, speed true. limits and seatbelts, so I do think that perhaps regulation, maybe instead of bemoaning regulation as something that is always too slow, maybe this is part of the. Maybe this is a feature, not a bug. Maybe this is part of the cycle for us to get upset and and motivated to, to build some guardrails. Also, there really is a space for these companies to get in and, and be the ethical leaders. Like we were talking earlier about uh, Defined AI and Daniela Braga, and I've done some work with them. And um, this is a large, there's a company that's doing large language models, mostly on the, you know, the AI training and is, you know, their whole framework is that this is professional work and the people that are doing it should be properly compensated and that the data should be appropriately sourced. Like that's their that's their corporate position on this stuff. And they're appalled by 
industry, you know, like everything is out for bid and you do what you can to, to get the business and the clients are not going to look too closely under the hood. And as a result, you have, you have companies that are, that are doing really shady, unethical stuff in terms of how that stuff is being trained. Well, I think that if, if companies that come out and say, we're going to be different, we're going to, we're going to make sure that this is done properly. We're going to allow opt-outs. We're going to be transparent about the way that we compensate and the way that the models are trained you know, and, and that those people gain traction in the market. But unfortunately, that, that's up to the people spending the money as who's going to win that battle. I do think it's great that Defined AI is um, showing that there's the market is big enough for there to be ethical, responsible data annotation, data collection, uh, because, you know, I, I expect there to be, as well in this art space, more folks, like you're saying, who say this is we're responsible first. We're artists first. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. And I, I think I want to wrap it up because this, this ethics point was really where I wanted to get to on this. But where um, where do you see uh, the best priorities at for companies that are trying to implement ethical standards right now as they're doing these? Or what what are the what are the best signs you see in terms of instincts and priorities? Well, I mean, I think that the Writers Guild settlement is really an interesting one to the extent that I understand what they what they agreed on with AI is that AI would never get the writing credit. Like there always had to be a human being attached to the to the story. So you couldn't you can't have self-driving scripts in Hollywood. And I think that's to the good, um, because, again, I think that under the under the guidance of somebody that knows what they're doing, these are very powerful tools. And if you keep in place the pipeline where people in the writer's room can learn their craft and become the people that are, you know, th that that get that perspective so that they, so they're not looking up at the AI tools saying, Oh my God, how do I get this good? They're looking down and saying, how do I use this properly? And if we can get to that point in the arts where this becomes a, uh, you know, a tool for humans to be, for skilled humans, for people that have actually put in the time and actually have the dedication to their craft and not, not people that are just, uh, you know, prompt engineering their way into bestsellers or into, into uh, you know, uh, award-winning pieces of artwork. That's probably the right, you know, because they are, this is powerful stuff and it's really cool and it's fun. And if you play with it and there really is this sense of amazing empowerment that you can just describe something and you can get it where I found the balance in my own, in my own stuff, it, you know, on, on the art side is I use it to generate reference images of stuff that I couldn't possibly find reference images for. And then I'll use that and I'll draw my own thing of it. I'm not going to present the, the, the AI generated mm -hmm. as my, as my work, you know, but it's helping me get better at the stuff that I want to get better at. And I tell my students also that that's a, that that's a really good use. You know, I teach a, I teach a class in grad school and we cover a lot of complicated concepts and many of the students English isn't their first language and I said here are the here are the ways that you can and should use AI in this class like get chat GPT to explain stuff to you mm -hmm. that you don't understand get it to help you express yourself in a second language if English isn't your first language to get your own thoughts and ideas up to a professional level and use it to generate imagery for your visual presentations that at, rather than stealing stock images or stuff like that, you can actually come up with some interesting stuff. A picture's worth a thousand words. And if you can put that in a, in a presentation instead of some slide that's jammed with words, 
that's a really good use of it. And I say, I say, don't use it for, don't generate work and say it's your own. It's not, you can't copyright it. Yeah. You know, well, and also their futures are going to be based Mm -hmm. on being smarter than the bot. So they have to start somewhere with that and don't use it for research Mm -hmm. because it lies. And, and, uh, I've come across some really hilarious things where it comes up with some very convincing false stuff. And I said, if you present, I'm going to check all your references and if you're presenting phantom URLs or I can't find credible places where this stuff is, you're going to, you know, it's going to be a very hard conversation. And I said, the reason is if you present false work in the workplace, you're going to get fired. You're going to get your boss fired. And, you know, so anyway, that's, that's the ethical approach that I'm trying to take with it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to be dealing with a bunch of bright people who are going to be the future of the business. And, you know, I know education is really struggling with this, but giving them an ethical framework and a, and a productive framework 100%. to say, look, this is helpful. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. It's like, of course it's easy. It's good, but use it, use it this way to make yourself stronger. Don't use it to substitute for skills and make it again, hearkening back to a decade plus ago, remind what you're saying reminds me of conversations I had with a lot of fresh out of college interns in journalism and blog writing about, no, you can't just scrape this and use this. You can't just pluck this in and drop it into your own work. That's not how fair use works in this case. Uh, And it seems like that conversation is a lot more complicated now that we have these generative tools that people can use for for better or worse. Right. Well, thank you, Rob. I want to encourage anybody to go look. uh, I think uh, your website is robsalkowitz.com if anybody wants to look up your work or follow you on uh, at Forbes or ICV2 or elsewhere. Uh, Hit me up on LinkedIn. I don't use the... I don't use the bird platform anymore, unfortunately. Well, yeah, thank you so much. Um, We'll have this up and uh, well, by the time everybody hears this, it'll be about a week later. We're looking to get this up before Thanksgiving for next week's episode. Yeah, so... Have a, have a great day. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for coming. That's a wrap on this week's episode of the AI Artifacts podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll visit us at AIartifacts.net. There you can subscribe to our Substack show notes newsletter and discuss anything you just heard. If you like what we're doing, we'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast and rate us on your platform of choice. This show is produced by Brian Wormuth and Sarah Luger. The music on the show is from Vanishing Horizon by Jason Shaw and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 United States license.